Thank you for choosing to listen to the Emmaus Radio Ministry Podcast. Each of these messages were given by various faculty, staff, and friends of Emmaus Bible College. To view each series as a whole or for more information about similar Emmaus ministries, please visit concerninghim.com. Last time we looked at uh, several major themes in the book of Jonah. This time I'd like to take a look at Jonah the prophet himself. What do we know about Jonah as a prophet from the scriptures? We don't really have a lot of information to work with. We have the book of Jonah, which is relatively small. We have four chapters, and each of the chapters are, you know, between 10 and 20 verses. So not a lot of information there. And and it's not all explicitly focused on the prophet himself. There is one other verse that is potentially linked to Jonah. And I'm going to make an argument that this actually does give us quite a bit of the historical background of the prophet himself. So we're going to look at 2 Kings 14.25. Now I'm going to read a little bit of the context here just to get an idea of uh, what's going on in this uh, setting. So 2 Kings 14, and I'll start reading in verse 23. In the fifteenth year of Amaziah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria and reigned forty-one years. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel's sin. He restored the border of Israel from the entrance of Hamath as far as the Sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke through his servant, Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, who was of Gath-Hefer. For the Lord saw the affliction of Israel, which was very uh, bitter, for there was neither bond nor free, nor was there any helper for Israel. Okay, so in these verses, we're given a little bit of the historical background of Jeroboam. This is Jeroboam II, not Jeroboam I. Jeroboam I was the first king of the northern kingdom of Israel, and he did some incredibly wicked things. Uh, He set up two separate places of worship, one at Dan in the north and one at Bethel, the southernmost city in the northern kingdom. He did this so that wherever you lived in the northern kingdom, you would be able to have easy access to a place of worship without having to travel back to Jerusalem, which was in the southern kingdom. So during the time of Jeroboam II, who is the ancestor of this first Jeroboam, there was uh, a lot of contention going on in the northern kingdom uh, in years surrounding this between the kingdom of Israel and some of the other kingdoms in the northern territory of Israel and beyond Israel's border and between the Assyrian Empire. Now, in the session for next time, we're going to take an entire session to look at the Assyrian Empire, and the city of Nineveh. I don't want to do that at this point. I just want to make a few comments about Jeroboam II. Uh, In the interaction between the kings of the northern kingdom and the kingdom of Assyria, there was constant battle for some of this northern territory. Uh, 
in the time of uh, Omri and Ahab, some of these earlier kings of the northern kingdom, the kings of Assyria had come in and battled with them and taken some of their territory. But that's not what happens here during the reign of Jeroboam II. Now, Jeroboam II is a very wicked king, as we've already read. He did not depart, in verse 24, from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. That's Jeroboam I, which he made Israel sin. So he was worshiping idols. Uh, they were not living out the message of the law, not doing what they should have been doing in the northern kingdom of Israel. But politically speaking, he did do some very effective and very good things. And that's given to us in verse 25. Jeroboam II, he restored the border of Israel from the entrance of Hamath as far as the Sea of the Arabah. Now that's uh, two geographical locators that are important for us to understand. Hamath in the north was even further north than the city of Damascus in uh, Aram, or modern-day Syria. Uh, it was an entranceway. It was sort of a fortress city that was guarding one of the major highways uh, from the Fertile Crescent down through the land of Palestine, the land of Canaan, toward the nation of Egypt. So Hamath was continually disputed between some of these kingdoms in the north and the kingdom of Assyria. Assyria wanted easy access to all of these trade routes. During the time of Jeroboam II, this city was recaptured, retaken, and uh, the border of Israel was restored all the way north to this city. That's a huge accomplishment for the northern kingdom of Israel. That meant they had some security from uh, the kingdom of Assyria. If Assyria was going to attack, they had a little bit of a buffer zone in the north. Very, very good for the northern kingdom of Israel. Also extended the territory south to the Sea of the Arabah. This is probably the Dead Sea. So even though that's entering into the area of the southern kingdom of Judah somewhat, there was probably some extent to which the northern kingdom possessed land by the Jordan River all the way down to the Dead Sea at this time. So politically, Jeroboam II is an effective king. Uh, spiritually, religiously, he's a very wicked king. What does this have to do with Jonah? Well, we read in verse 25 that he restored these borders according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke through his servant, Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was of Gath-hefer. Now, where is Gath-hefer? It's a small little city in the region of Zebulun, west of the Sea of Galilee. It's about halfway between the Sea of Galilee and the Mediterranean Sea, very close to where the city of Nazareth uh, would be in New Testament times. So not a lot of major things going on in this area, but Jonah is from this territory, probably of the tribe of Zebulun. He's the son of Amittai, which I think is a strong indication that this is the same Jonah who is referred to in the book of Jonah, chapter 1. There he's given as Jonah, the son of Amittai, 
also. Most likely, these are the same individuals spoken of in these two parallel passages. What does this tell us about Jonah the man? It tells us that he predicted by the word of the Lord during the time of Jeroboam II that Jeroboam would be successful in gaining territory all the way north to Hamath and all the way south to the Sea of the Arabah. That is huge politically for the people of Israel at this time. It also gives us some indication, I would say the first glimpse that we have into the heart of Jonah as an individual. He's, he, he speaks, he prophesies nationalistically, and he does it through the Holy Spirit, through God speaking through him, but he is giving a message that all of the people in the northern kingdom would have loved to hear, that your kingdom is going to expand once again, your territory is going to go forth all the way north until uh, Hamath in the north, and you'll have this buffer zone. Things will be like they were before. In fact, this might be the biggest uh, that Israel has ever gotten as a nation. So Jonah, I think we have a sense of, of the prophet being very nationalistic through this. People would have liked this message. They would have received it well. The king would have received it well. Maybe Jonah was in very good standing with Jeroboam II as a result of this. Now, as we go through the book, we're going to see several stages in the life of the prophet. In the first chapter... Uh, we see from the word of the Lord coming to Jonah, telling him to go from Israel to the city of Nineveh in the heart of the Assyrian Empire. I think we begin to see as this nationalistic prophet, suddenly all of his fame is going to dissolve. It's going to disappear. God is telling him, okay, I told you to prophesy this previously, now I'm telling you to get up and go to these people. And that was something that Jonah wanted no part of. So we begin to see a reason why he did not want to go to the city. There's more to the story than just that, but I think this helps give us some of the intention, the motivation uh, behind this individual. He is in chapter 1, uh, a disobedient prophet. God tells him to get up and go to the city of Nineveh, and he doesn't do it. He gets up and he goes in the opposite direction. He goes down, and he is told by God to get up and go up to the city of Nineveh. It's interesting how those uh, two terms offset each other in the text. So he disobeys the Lord. He goes down onto the uh, ship at Joppa, faring for Tarshish. He stays in the ship, falls asleep there in the ship. Everything that happens while he's on the ship happens to him as a disobedient prophet. He's disobeyed the Lord, and now he's going to have to face the consequences of that disobedience. By the time he's thrown overboard into the the sea, and then is swallowed by the whale. In chapter 2, we see his prayer from inside the belly of the fish. And in that prayer, it's interesting to note that there's not any specific statement 
of repentance. There's definitely a cry for help. There's definitely a cry for God to restore him and to look for the Lord to deliver him. But explicitly, uh, any statement on repentance for his action is uh, abundantly missing in the text. And I think there's a reason behind that as well. So at the end, by the end of chapter 2 and into chapter 3, we see Jonah as the reluctantly obedient prophet. Now he is starting to do what the Lord asks him to do. Uh, in chapter 3, we see the word of the Lord come to him again, just as it had in chapter 1, telling him to get up and go. And this time he does. He goes to the city of Nineveh and he cries out against it according to the word of the Lord. Uh, now, all sorts of things have been read into the, the brevity of Jonah's message here. I'm not sure that that's fair. Uh, Jonah delivered the message that God had given him to take to the people, reluctantly, albeit, but he did it. By the time we get to chapter 4, the city of Nineveh has repented. They have asked for forgiveness, and God has relented. He has according to the text, changed his mind about the wrath that he had determined to bring upon the city. And to Jonah, this does not sit well at all. So in chapter 4, we have Jonah as the angry and disillusioned prophet. He is questioning God's sovereignty. He is questioning God's love and God's mercy. God, why did you do this? This is the very reason uh, that I didn't want to come to Nineveh in the first place, because I knew that you are gracious and merciful, uh, abundant uh, in loving kindness, slow to anger, and one who relents from calamity. So Jonah knew all this beforehand, and yet he is disillusioned because in his mind, God has acted unjustly in regard to Nineveh. They deserved judgment, and God did not execute judgment. So we see this something of a transformation of Jonah take place throughout the book. And what is the outcome of it all? Well, I'm going to save that for the end, our discussion of uh, Jonah chapter 4. And uh, if we have any indication of what happened after these events uh, in the heart of the prophet. Thank you for listening to the Emmaus Radio Ministry Podcast. This ministry is possible because of the generous contributions from our partners around the world. For more information about partnering with us, please visit Emmaus.edu partner.